Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. I'm always excited when we have guests on, so um, very excited about today. How about you? Yeah, same. I always enjoy our guest episodes, and I think today will be no exception. So uh, how about, uh, without further ado, we just jump right in and introduce our guest. Sure, that sounds good. So today we have Aria Cohen-Wade with us, who is someone who... I learned about through his podcast, and I also follow him on Twitter. His podcast is called Culturally Determined. Very interesting. It involves a lot of a variety of guests talking about a bunch of topics that are relevant to pop culture, broadly speaking, and is also just a very funny tweeter. <laughs> yeah, after your suggestion, uh, I've enjoyed uh, Arya's tweets quite a bit. Yes, yeah, so I, and I think. If we get to it at the end, you've got a few uh, a few good ones lined up, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. So right. maybe we should go ahead and get started and talk to Arya. That sounds good. Arya, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for being on with us. I'm great. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Absolutely. Well, maybe we can start and you could just tell us a little bit about your job and or kind of the educational or career path that led you to kind of where you are today. Sure. So I am the executive editor of Blogging Heads TV and its sister site, Meeting of Life TV. Uh, Blogging Heads TV was founded in 2005 uh, by the journalists Robert Wright and Mickey Kaus. And it was an early example of video on the web um, with the goal of having people who were uh, political bloggers uh, talk to each other. So this was the heyday of the blog, the blogosphere. But people like uh, Ezra Klein and Matthew Iglesias and Ross Douthat weren't household names, and they definitely were not appearing on uh, cable news. So this site uh, brought them in uh, split-screen video conversation with each other, uh, talking about the events of the day mostly. And uh, the site expanded to also discuss uh, science and philosophy and religion, and those those three areas spun off into the other site, Meaning of Life TV. Um, so the site still hosts video podcasts, and now um, the videos are now hosted on YouTube, um, and they are also available uh, wherever you normally get podcasts. So I, I, I host my own show called Culturally Determined that appears on both those sites. Awesome. And one thing about the show, it, you cover a whole variety of different topics. So things like Kanye West, uh, things like a sex cult or cultural appropriation, really just covering kind of a whole spectrum. So how do you decide on the guests? How do you decide on the topics? Kind of what's your process like for that? I'm, I'm taking notes to steal your ideas. So, <laughs> You know, I guess I'm kind of, uh, I have a wide ranging interests, I guess. You know, sure. I, I'm, not, I'm not really uh, an expert in anything. I'm kind of a generalist. Um, so, like, I, I was an English major in college, but I always had it. And, uh, you know, I, when I was a kid, I watched an incredible amount of television that my parents <laughs> permitted me to do, I think, because it was just a way to uh, keep me quiet. Um, so, uh, and I also have um, 
you know, an interest in comedy and was the editor of uh, my college humor magazine for one year. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of just look around at what people are talking about, what's in the news, what people are talking about on Twitter, what interesting articles are out there. And if it kind of piques my interest, uh, I'll give it a shot. You know, we've done some things where I have a, like, set opinion. Like, I had some ideas about cultural appropriation before I did that one. Um, and, you know, I guess everyone has an opinion on Kanye West. Uh, <laughs> but uh, do other, I've done other ones where I really just know what I've read in the article and have questions to ask. So, yeah, the one on the uh, Nexium cult... Um, or one on uh, the, making the case against um, or saying that body positivity was like a corporate scam. Mm-hmm. Those are areas where I had less specific knowledge but wanted to talk to someone who had thought a lot, thought a lot about it. And is there, it sounds like from how Blogging Heads TV started out, it is really just to have these conversations and kind of put them out there for people. Is that, do you have specific goals for culturally determined other than um getting these different opinions about relevant topics out there? Are there are there certain criteria that you have for whether a topic is important enough or uh, relevant enough for you to choose? Uh, well, when, the, when blogging has first started, um, it pretty quickly became a place where people could have long-form conversations, discussions, and debates in a civil manner. So this is like around when... Um, uh, Crossfire was still on CNN, and there was a lot of there were a lot of like shouting matches on cable news, and and blogging heads was an antidote to that because uh, you know there was no well we were ideally having people on who are a little bit uh, better than the kind of people who appear on cable news, but also um, there was no like time limit and no commercials, so but extend uh, on my show I I have less of a like. I'm looking for less ideological diversity, more than just, like, d- diversity of topics and ideas. Um, it, I mean, it has to interest me somewhat in order to, uh, in order for me to put in the time uh, to uh, to record the, set up the conversation, conversation and record it. Um, but I don't think there's been any, and Bob, Bob Wright, who's still the boss of Blogging Heads and Meaning of Life, um, I don't think he's given me the, you know, a cancellation notice on any any ideas or anything like that. So you know he's pretty open to hosting diverse you know diverse array of people. And then I you know I also have a goal for diversity in the sense of uh, gender diversity, which I've been doing a fairly good job of, of getting about fifty fifty or even slightly more women men versus men, and trying to get uh, racial diversity as well. Though I've been doing uh, somewhat of a less stellar job in achieving that. Okay, and so what you're talking about in terms of how blogging had started out, it seems like that's something that's certainly back in the national conversation, having civil discourse with people having different ideas and things like that. Has there been anything in your job as executive editor that seems like it's become uncivil? I think, I, I honestly think people are less interested in consuming civil left-right debate than they used to be. I, I feel like the country's gotten more tribal. And um, that's, I mean, tri- a tribal, having a tribal perspective is where the audience is. That's, you know, successful websites 
often ha- are playing for one team and are you know disparaging the opposite team. Mm-hmm. So blogging heads, well, the people who work there are pretty much liberals. Um, we're still trying to get on a diverse range of viewpoints, but I think it, I think it is harder than it than it was ten years ago. Huh, that's that's interesting. And so you you think that's because people have moved more into feeling like they're part of a team and want to see content that matches kind of their what what they're thinking ahead of time. Yeah, I, I think. I think politics has gotten a lot more tribal. I think Trump is like a figure of pure tribalism. And if he says that person X is his friend one day, his fans will cheer. And if he says the same person is his enemy the next day, his his fans will boo. Um, And I think the left and liberals have kind of responded to that becoming by becoming more tribal themselves. Um, So it's, it's a, it's an unfortunate dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So thinking about kind of civil discord and discussion, one thing I know is that you covered some controversial issues, and I just want to ask you a couple of questions about that. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, which of your episodes uh, kind of have you felt have had the most positive feedback? Hmm, that's a good question. I, the, the negative feedback stands out in my <laughs> mind more. Sure. And maybe that's a quirk of my personality. Um <laughs> You know, I think, I mean, people respond, I think people honestly respond to the guest more than the topic. Nothing is, no, none of them are immediately coming to mind, but um, the way the guest presents him or herself, I think often um, shapes it. You know, I did I did an episode with um, ContraPoints, the YouTube mm-hmm. uh, personality, and that, that one went, went really well. And she has a very devoted fan base, and, when, and she helped spread it around. So there was a lot, and I, the people who... Are the regular blogging heads commenters who can be kind of an ornery lot? Um, they, they gave positive feedback for that one as well. Okay, I, I can tell you what causes the most negative feedback. I, I'd that, love yeah. that was the next question. Yes, please. <laughs> this is at least in the past couple months, and that is any negative mention of Jordan Peterson. <laughs> oh sure, people are very committed to him and um, feel like he's his ideas are being misrepresented. And if you say mm-hmm. something bad about him, they're like. Well, you really have to read his books and watch his videos. So I'm I'm trying to set, I'm setting up now a conversation with someone who's more sympathetic to Jordan Peterson to rep- represent that point of view. I've seen a lot of that online, or at least on Twitter, where I, I spend too much time people mm-hmm. saying you just don't understand the context or you don't understand kind of these underlying ideas. Anytime that someone kind of speaks critically about Jordan Peterson or his ideas, so that I, that doesn't surprise me to hear that. Yeah, it's weird, and I'm uh, skeptical of someone's ideas when you have to, like, read a 500-page yeah. book to really get what he's talking about. Like, <laughs> yeah, otherwise you're misunderstanding him. Like, are, yeah. are these ideas so intricate and complex that it requires that kind of commitment to even grasp them? I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. Yeah, I, I agree. I've... I have not commented a ton on Twitter or online about Jordan Peterson, but sometimes I've taken one particular thing within my area of clinical psychology and I've screenshotted his quotes. And even then I've had people comment that I'm misunderstanding or misreading or I'm not, you know, even though it's like the direct quotes and like I studied clinical psychology for many years and I'm being very specific about that thing. So I know what you mean. He does seem to have quite a devoted fan base that 
Um, even scan for people talking about him, mm-hmm. it almost feels like. So it, it's a very, it's interesting. So getting someone who is speaking and who's sympathetic to his point of view. And again, I think there are aspects of that that are of things that he says that, you know, there are certain aspects of what he says that draw more controversy than others, mm-hmm. of course. But that'll, I look forward to that episode. Um, the, your episode with Natalie Wen, who does ContraPoints, was one of my favorite episodes. I, I think that was either what introduced me to her YouTube channel or I watched it shortly after that. I can't remember the exact order, but I think that's... She's someone who I think, like you said, I, something about her personality and the way that she interviews, even when she's talk, she she just has a great way of... I think saying things very plainly may mm-hmm. be in what we're talking about. And so I like how um, the questions you ask her, she also responds in very to the point ways that it's kind of like you get what she means without having to do all the background watching and reading. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. in contrast. And, yeah. And she, yeah. And she did a recent video about uh, Jared Peterson, yeah. uh, a critique of him. That was, that's uh, very good. I recommend. Okay, yeah, that's, I actually, we both watched it, mm-hmm. I thought that was good too, and um, I don't know that he ever responded to that, it seemed like from her more recent video he didn't, did you ever hear of him responding to it? No, you know, I, he doesn't, I mean, I, I'm not like on the Jordan Peterson beat, but he doesn't mm-hmm. seem to do serious rebuttals to his critics, like mm-hmm. he posted one thing, uh, like a really angry tweet, like threatening to punch someone in the face or, or something. Oh, or I, you're with me in this room, I'd slap you silly, something like that. Um, but he hasn't, I mean, he doesn't publish like articles, you know, like in the New York Review of Books. Like he makes YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Or sues them. Yeah. If they're critical. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, it would have been. So even in that, you'd think, because he's in the YouTube kind of culture, broader culture or yeah. whatever, that. He didn't make a YouTube video response, though. But he, but maybe he's... I don't know if he makes response videos to specific critics, but you're right. It, it's the... You know, like Brandon was saying, like he is suing, mm-hmm. right, for the what was said in a private mm-hmm. meeting. Like, is it a libel yep. lawsuit yep. or something like that? But it, you're right, it's not like a thorough article. But but anyway, so that's interesting. And, and when you get negative reactions to topics... Does that stress you out, or is like any reaction good when you're trying to start conversations? You know, I don't know why exactly. Maybe it's just as I've gotten older, I really don't care about the negative criticism from people online. Um, when someone does something that I think is either like really over the top or funny in some way, I'll, I'll occasionally just reply, like, thanks for the feedback, or... <laughs> Uh, I'll always have to find a new fan or something <laughs> sarcastic. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, the, the the core like stance of it, of like anyone commenting on the internet is to like critique the thing they're commenting about. Yeah. Um, and occasionally, occasionally there's uh, valid critiques. I know. I know. I say um and like a lot, and that's been pointed out by some people. I don't think I can fix that at this point in my life. So, yeah, but usually, I don't know, maybe, maybe I have too high an opinion of my, <laughs> my product, but usually I just laugh it off. That seems necessary, yeah. though, because I, at least I've noticed, like, we're getting close to 100 episodes of this podcast, and it definitely seems like, at least with our experience, I'm less sensitive to that. I think in the beginning when you're less sure, I don't know, for me, it was like less sure of what I'm doing or, yeah. or that kind of thing that, 
um, I was maybe more sensitive to that. But it seems like especially for what you're doing, because what we do is mostly focused on non-controversial mental health. Although, despite saying that, there has been some negative feedback. But oh, yeah. but still, uh, cultural appropriation or mm-hmm. apparently Jordan Peterson, like it seems like those would evoke stronger responses. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm glad because I think that's that's part of what I really like about your podcast is that it's just an honest kind of blunt conversation where it's not like overly trying to shape it into like a presentation mm-hmm. or something like that. It sounds more like you're, you're overhearing two interesting people talk about an interesting topic, which is really cool. Yeah. And that was actually an early description of blogging heads from back, like in the 2005, 2006 days was like, this is, the conversation you would overhear at a coffee shop when two journalists were meeting each other. Um, and, you know, the kind of the standard podcast, like the, in 2005, pod, podcasting wasn't an established genre with its own kind of set of rules that most follow. So it's it was just people saying, like, hi, I'm so-and-so, hi, I'm so-and-so, then launching into it. You know, we didn't have, like, music or, you know, mm-hmm. breaks. And it's kind of maintained that that, like, do-it-yourself um, aesthetic to it uh, all this time later, even though you know now there is an established pod- podcast form. Yeah, I, I, I think that's cool because like, one thing I like about, we were talking about Twitter a little bit earlier, is I do like seeing journalists engage each other, mm-hmm. and I find that really interesting. Um, you know, sometimes they're arguing and through things, but that is something I you normally wouldn't see, so I feel like it gives you a chance to understand how a profession outside of yours thinks about things mm-hmm. and how they work through things. Um, yeah, and you know, uh, Twitter didn't come around until 2008, I believe. And I think, and Twitter has taken some of the original impetus behind blogging heads away because all journalists are on there and they have a rolling conversation going on there, and you can fo- you can follow along. Whereas in 2005, you know, maybe Matt Iglesias and Raihan Salam would write blog posts that respond to each other, but you couldn't get like a kind of real time interaction mm-hmm. between. Yeah, I think I still, I still like the podcast form too, because it is obviously longer than Twitter. Sometimes it's it, until they start linking to their stuff, but then it, it can become very involved. It's nice to be able to listen. I thought I'd mention, um, I was actually going to mention some of my favorite episodes before we talk about some of the mental health ones. You already mentioned the one with Natalie Wynn from ContraPoints, which was really good, and we'll link to these in the show notes. I really liked the one with the monk, Peter Edmund Waldstein. That was just fascinating, mm-hmm. and, like, that's... I like that generalist model where it's, like, this is about... Like you said, like, you can tell it's just you're someone who's interested in a lot of different things, and so that was good. And um, David Litt, who worked with Obama, that was a really fun episode, too. I think that was one of the earlier ones that I listened to. And you... Mm-hmm. Did you go to school with him, or did you know him from before? I can't remember. Yeah, we he was on the Humor magazine I mentioned before. I think I was class of 2005. I think he was 2008. So he, so he graduated and immediately went to work as a field organizer for Obama, like in Ohio or something, and that's how he got into the you know Obama campaign and eventually into the into the White House so he was the he was the editor of the magazine a couple years after I graduated he had a more a more prestigious career path um than, than I did and yeah he's a he's an interesting guy he just um sold a uh, a pilot a okay. second pilot based on his years working in the White House uh to some network or at least it's it the pilot is being filmed oh interesting what uh, what was the magazine for those of us who want to look up your old work on it? 
Uh, it's called the <laughs> Yale Record. Um, mm-hmm. It does not have a funny name, but it's uh, the oldest college human mag- magazine in, the, in America. Um, they have their website has gone through like multiple versions because you know the students are always like shuffling in and out. So, but some of the um, some of the uh, old stuff I wrote in college, I've I've put on my my own website. Okay, we'll make sure to link to that for people because I was reading over some of that this week, and there's there's a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, one thing that that I particularly like is that there are some things that are more serious commentary, and then things that are serious but done through humor, which I'm a big fan of, so mm-hmm. I like that. Um, so maybe we can shift into the episode that I think is one of my favorite episodes from Culturally Determined. I think I've shared it with many people. Is the one with Daniel Chilakian? I don't know if I I'm think, pronouncing yeah, I think that's how And she was responding to, um, for our listeners, She there was a New York Times piece that was basically talking about antidepressants and they were using stigmatizing terms like pill popping and people being they were treating it like it's something that people might be addicted to and problematic that's a very brief version i'll actually um link to it and then uh dan danielle wrote a response article that i thought was really good and talking about what chronic depression is like and kind of picking that article apart did i get the basic gist of that yeah the the article was saying was about um how it can be hard to go off of an antidepressant when you've been on it for an extended length of time. And it's not, there haven't been a ton of studies of like what, you know, what happens during withdrawal. Some people have very bad um, withdrawal reactions and some people don't have any, you know, negative reaction at all. But yeah, the article had some major problems, um, as you mentioned, it kind of, yeah, yeah, mentioning the phrase pill popping, and also just kind of mentioning, just keep having this idea that like, well, of course you would want to go off an antidepressant because it didn't really say, but like, you know, you shouldn't want to be on an antidepressant, and so just implying that there was something negative about be, being on one in the long term, and also what I, um, Danielle wrote about, it didn't really talk about why people would be on an antidepressant in the first place, and. You know, there's a, it, I don't know. It treated depression almost like you would treat like, uh, you know, being addicted to coffee or something, mm-hmm. and, and going through caffeine withdrawal or, or something along those lines instead of like a, a more serious illness. Like, uh, you know, that we she made the comparison to, uh, you know, like going off of insulin if you're diabetic would mm-hmm. would not be a good idea. Yeah, and that and having that narrative reinforced in the New York Times, I think, is a big deal because at least in the past when I would work with therapy clients, a lot of that is an internalized message anyway that, you know, they might be suffering and they've tried other types of therapy and they still don't want to try medications because of this idea that it's an addiction, which is a misunderstanding about how these drugs, most of them really work anyway. Um, just a lot of misconceptions. So then having something like that, I, I, and I think a lot of other people appreciated Danielle's counterpoints to that. Yeah. And that was, yeah, I was uh, happy to do that episode. And also in that episode, I kind of like came out as someone who has had uh, depression in the past and is on antidepressants. Now I felt like that, you know, to talk about this, I had to, uh, state that 
Yeah, that was kind of what we were going to ask about next. A lot of your episodes focus on kind of the other person's work or experience, but this one did have some of that personal uh, disclosure. And, and what was that like for you to talk about your experiences with depression kind of on the show? Um, I, I, was, I was somewhat hesitant when I thought to do this episode. I was like, well, uh, it would make sense for me to, you know, I could either play the neutral interlocutor or I could like give my own perspective and i you know there's not a lot i don't know i haven't seen a lot of descriptions out there that matched with my description of depression or my personal experience of depression Mm -hmm. so that's and i'm at this point far enough away from my last episode of depression that i felt comfortable just uh yeah just saying it publicly did you get any specific feedback about your uh, disclosure with your experience with depression from that episode? Um, there were there were a ton of comments to that one, but there were the ones that were there were like appreciative and you know said mm-hmm. like you know thank you to both of both of you for sharing your personal experiences. Sure. Yeah, I I thought the description part. In fact, I specifically sent it to someone who was kind of um, new to thinking about themselves as having depression, and I thought the way that you talked about the physical pain aspect of it and the physical discomfort, that that's not maybe as well known. And and when I teach undergraduates in abnormal psychology and talk about the physical pain of depression, I thought it was really interesting how you talked about you, you don't even really know it's there until it's lifted a little bit. And uh, I, I think that that along with your examples of catastrophizing um, as cognitive behavioral therapy would talk about and 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 seeing things at the worst case scenario i think that's helpful to people who don't have depression too to understand what this is like and why someone might think it's better to take medications than to continue to to experience those types of things yeah um the when i when my yeah when my depression lifted it happened very quickly um or at least the the, the last time it lifted and it was near, I don't know, not, I would say near instantaneous, um, the, the way it was, it was like a light being turned on or yeah. like a red light being turned off or something. Um, and I could like tell very, very, very quickly that like my mood had jumped considerably and yeah, the, the like pain, like, you know, the sense of unending pain had, had suddenly ended. I think you phrased it as something like the darkness finally being pulled back, which I thought was just such a clear description of how it's different from kind of not looking on the bright side of things. No, this is something really that feels qualitatively different to a lot of people. It's not something that, I mean, and it obviously has nothing to do with intelligence or logic and being able to see things clearly. It's something that makes it very hard to, not think these terrible things about yourself and your life, even though you rationally know better, you know? Yeah. yeah and I've seen people say, I, I'm not sure if I agree with this, but I've seen people say that people who are smarter when they get depressed are even better at creating negative thoughts and, you know, casting yourself in a negative light. And if something good happens being able to twist it very quickly into actually this is something bad or this shows that I, that I'm horrible like it, you know you're what <laughs> one thing depression taught me was like yeah your brain can really <laughs> come up with some crazy stuff 
Um, and yeah, if you're, I think there, I mean, you, the podcast, I'm sure you're aware of it. Um, the hilarious world of depression, uh, is all about the link between depression and comedy. And there are a number of comics who have experience with, um, mental health problems. And there does seem to be some kind of connection there between like, uh, the creative ability that enables you to come up with jokes and a twist in that being like turned inward against yourself. Yeah. I, and actually, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I actually haven't listened to that podcast. Have you, Brandon? Nope. I haven't either. I have. Well, I recommend it. It's good. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll check that out and I'll, and I'll link to it. Um, that's, that, that's something I wanted to talk to you about too, because I'm someone that's, I'm very interested in humor and mental health. I don't research it or anything like that. And I don't, but, um, I mean, I don't conduct original research on it, but just personally, that's part of my mental health maintenance is going to stand up comedy and doing things that involve like laughing. Uh, <laughs> and so some of the research on humor that I find interesting is it seems like certain types of humor, like looking for absurdities in a situation tend to make people feel better. Whereas mocking and putting other people down in most circumstances doesn't seem to do that. And something that I think is cool is that the literature suggests that you can teach people, you don't have to like be a naturally funny person. You can teach people to see humor as a coping strategy. And I think that that's, at least for me personally, been been helpful, especially if the humor is very engaging. Brendan and I saw David Cross doing some stand-up last week, mm-hmm. and, I mean, it it was so funny that it's kind of like whatever was going on, it definitely brightened my mood. But right. part of it is just the, the skill set of being able to be that funny. And so I was wondering if humor at all plays into how you see your maintenance of your mental health. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a deep topic, I think, um, on this, on the hilarious world of depression, the host, the first, the first question the host always asks is, is depression funny? Mm -hmm. And then the comedian answers, the comedian usually answers yes. I would say like 80% of the time they answer yes. I've, I thought if, if I were ever asked that question, I would say no. Um, for me, depression was not funny at all. (laughs) It makes it... Mm -hmm. When you're depressed, it makes it very hard to have, like, any positive experience, uh, like, laughing is one. And maybe if you're watching something funny, you it can take you out of it, take you out of a depressed mood a little bit, but you're, didn't, you're just, like, placed right back in it seconds later. Um, so, but depression is also, like, really stupid and, like, absurd. So from the outside, it can be silly because it makes people act in ways that aren't logical, um, which is, you know, part of comedy. Uh, but I, but for my for my experience, like it, depression is not funny. On the, on the other hand, I think you you can use comedy, and humans have always used comedy to cope with the uh, bad things in their lives. And I've uh, long had an interest in comedy about like forbidden subjects, like uh, you know the producers is the most famous example of this. I'm joking about uh, Hitler and World War II. Um, although he doesn't really touch the Holocaust that much, which is still kind of a forbidden subject. Um, the non I did a blogging his episode on uh, how, whether you could make a funny Holocaust joke that's in, in the archives. Um, but I, you know, I wrote I wrote a piece that I uh, put on Medium 
it was about a year ago, um, and it was about Trump. And I think I was I was with well, the the impetus for it was I was drive I was driving and listening to NPR, and there was they were playing a quote from Trump, and I suddenly just realized like, oh, this is absurd. Like Trump is president. This is just absurd. Like what? Like this doesn't make any sense. This is <laughs> absurd. And then it, it it was almost like a cathartic realization for me where I was like, what? This doesn't really, I mean, what? <laughs> like, does it really matter? Like, like, can we really, be, like, is it worth getting so exercised over this, like, buffoon? And I, like, I still pay very close attention to politics. And I'm still, like, doing, what, like, whatever small part I can to oppose Trump, like, after that, I, it was, it almost, like, gave me, like, a, like, a psychological lightness to just be like, well, this is just, like, a, this is just, like, a crazy joke, and, and, and I wrote, I read in the piece about, like, I, you know, I acknowledge my privilege as someone who's not being directly affected by Trump's negative policies, um, and, and so on, but I still kind of have that, like, a year later, I still kind of have that sense of him where it's like, this, this is a joke and this is absurd and you know a lot of life is absurd but we kind of have to carry on carry on with what we're doing and we can you know, oppose him but like getting sucked into the like the emotional psychodrama of, of everything that's happening in national politics is like you know not not helping anyone no i i think that's a great point like it's it's like you're saying it's like this this balance i mean i actually think that's why um comedians can have a role in making this kind of compelling political commentary, but also pointing out some of the absurdities of very serious situations in a way that can make you think, but also, like you said, just cope in a different way by kind of stepping back for a second and, and seeing the bigger picture. And like you said, of course, that involves some privilege to you know not be directly, well, totally directly affected and stuff like that. But um, I think that's a great example of this, this kind of this research suggesting that like having a positive type of humor where you look at absurdities in a situation. Um, and there are many that you can do that way. I'm going to, I'll link to that. Uh, I actually was reading that last night, the incredible lightness of Donald. I like the unbearable lightness of being. So that was kind of fun that you linked in some of that stuff. Um, yeah, thank you. And I just, you know, I think humor in dark in dark times, you know, humor is definitely a positive. You know, people the um, jokes were told by prisoners in concentration camps that you know came out afterwards. Um, I was reading, although I didn't finish because it was a little too a little too dense. Uh, a book called uh, like the History of Jewish Humor, and uh, it included some jokes that were relayed by survivors that were told in concentration camps. Uh, you know about their about their situation. Um, so I, you know, I, I think there's, there are running arguments about what it's okay to joke about and what's okay not to joke about, but it's human to, to joke and it it has usually has a positive, uh, psychological effect. Yeah. And I think you're right that, I mean, it's hard to think of, well, there are lots of dark situations, but sitting in a concentration camp is definitely one of the darkest. And to think of people using humor to connect or cope in that time, I think is really remarkable. And so I, I think that's that's a great point. Um, some of your humor that I find very funny and I think is like mostly through your tweets, um, but they, I think that like some of them are pointing out absurdity. Like one of the, one of the ones that I highlighted was um, it's 
the you quote tweeted the New York Daily News story that says the real estate company formerly headed by Jared Kushner exposed children to cancer causing substances as part of a campaign to push rent stabilized tenants out of their apartments, a lawsuit claims. And your commentary was probably just some sort of wacky misunderstanding. <laughs> it's like that's like a horrible news story, but having it put in that way, I don't know, there's something about that that it makes me laugh because and which is necessary, I think, to balance like obviously the points of like the actions that push to change who's in office, but <laughs> Yeah, I and with I with that one I I've used that joke, that same format joke a couple times in the past couple months of something being a misunderstanding. And I think I mean you know, sometimes there's the old thing about like dissecting a frog. Um, you know, dissecting a joke is like dissecting a frog. You kill it, and no one cares in the end. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like just this persona of like a that I think is works well on Twitter for some reason is like a a like well-meaning moron or someone <laughs> who's like totally wrong but very polite about it. And that seems to, in, like, the condensed format of Twitter, often you're able to get the, like, you know, flipped reality of the joke in there, but keep it tethered to, like, normality, I guess is is the way I would put it. Yeah, and I I like dissecting jokes. I think that's funny. I actually, some of the daily show writers were, that remind me, the frog aspect, some of the daily show writers did some stand-up comedy a couple years ago, and I ran into them at when they were out for drinks after. And one of them recommend Adam Lowett from the daily show recommended that poking the frog, um, book. That's basically mm-hmm. all about <laughs> my sexing jokes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty really sure. good. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, the other thing that you were talking about in terms of joking about things that like are considered taboo. I also like <laughs> your running joke about like, when someone dies, so and so taught me it was okay to be weird. <laughs> yeah, I, the, I, it's not mine originally. I borrowed it a little bit. Um, the one, the the thing that I think I'm I'm originated on Twitter um, is saying "rest in power," which I mean I didn't I wasn't people say "rest in power" um, unironically, which I, which really just tickles me to no end. I don't know why. I mean, it's joking about death the most serious thing but it's like no you can't just rest in peace you have to rest in power and that's just so absurd (laughs) like you're not like they're not even really resting in peace like they're not resting like we all acknowledge they're not resting and being resting in power doesn't also like as an extra level of not making sense to it and then this the being very solemn about it like the way you would speak at a funeral or something, and you're like, "Rest in power." <laughs> something so absurd about that that I'm I continue to like flog that joke uh, over and over again. Well, I I think it's very funny, but you're right. There is something just like from like a meaning perspective of resting in power that it does conjure a strange image. So that's the other thing that I that I find very funny is when you take something that's like. It's taken for granted that that's just the expression, but then you actually take a step back and you're like, that actually doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, I saw I saw Zach Galifianakis do stand-up, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago now, and he said something like, 
um, I support the war, but not the troops. <laughs> I was like, that's perfect. Cause like a lot of people just repeat it the way that it's, I support the troops, but not the war. But like, of course, like why would <laughs> the other way doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I enjoy yeah, that. The reversal exposes the banality of the original mm. comment. Exactly. Not meaningless. E- exactly. And I like, I like to expose uh, meaninglessness. <laughs> I find that highly humorous. Um, a couple others. We won't keep you too long because we've already kept you over. But it's relevant to this podcast since we talk about things like relevant to pop culture and stuff like that. The, the quoted tweet that you had was, Marvel's Black Widow gets one step closer to reality with a new director. And your commentary is great now now scarlett johansson is expecting us to buy her playing a black woman whose husband has died and that's it's great because it's like there's this very serious conversation can scarlett johansson play these people when she's not um can she play someone who people believe was trans when she's cisgender can she play someone who is asian when she's not asian but this was just super clever and I definitely laughed a lot when I saw that because it's it's obviously like you said it's taking that situation and drawing it into a different perspective yeah I, I actually thought I might catch a little shit for that one but I didn't um but yeah I th- I, I think it's a really interesting topic and I'm, I've actually thought about trying to get someone on to blogging has to discuss it this whole thing of uh it, it, you know, changing a, a white woman playing an Asian character, though it's a little weird in th- that case because, like, it was a cyborg or something I, in that movie that she got, you know, it was like an anime robot, mm-hmm. so should this have been an Asian character? It's a little unclear. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, should a cisgender person play a transgender person is, like, the new iteration of that, and that was, that's what I was riffing off of. I, it, it, I think, yeah, I think it's it's interesting, and I I can see the perspectives on both sides. Yeah, and and to be clear, like, all of these topics, they're, you know, to go with the theme is that there are serious things and things to take seriously here, but at least for me, I think the humor helps, like, coping with them, but it also actually just makes you, good humor makes you look at things in a different way. It makes you step back a little bit. Um, But obviously, I mean, that is playing also off of the title Black Widow, which doesn't mean yeah. what you're saying right. it means, which is very funny. Um, so, that's more like the well, like well-meaning moron kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. And maybe the, you're right. Maybe that is especially funny because there are um, that's a real thing. So when you're imitating it, it helps. <laughs> I don't know. Like we've yeah, seen people who write that stuff <laughs> because there's so many people on Twitter and, and stuff spreads so like quickly and in ways you can never predict like often if you look at the replies to some kind of joke like that that gets really popular you'll see people who don't understand the joke in the comments and so yeah these people are out there and they feel <laughs> they feel necessary to ask questions about jokes they don't understand or say like hey that's offensive you know the, so yeah the the well-meaning moron it, it, they are out there and there's a lot of more on Twitter, well-meaning or not well-meaning. <laughs> um, so one one last style of joke that that you make on Twitter that I that I'll mention is there will be some trending topic and the the beginning of the sentence will be like reflecting what a lot of people are saying. But part of what's so funny is that it's like 
so for example, um, one of them is about the nomination on the of the new Supreme Court justice candidate Brett, Brett Kavanaugh, and so a lot of you know senators and Congress people are putting out their statements on it, and and you put <laughs> I'll be voting no on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to any and all online polls I encounter, and. So I love that because it's like, it starts off like a very serious thing, but it's like the recognition, like I'm not, I'm not in that, but you know, it's like, I don't know, everyone has to rush to put their opinion out there. So it's kind of fun to see it like with a little more of a joke twist on it. Yeah. And that one, it was also like, you know, we, we have, we, the regular people of this country have like very little influence in this process. But yet everyone still wants to like weigh in with their uh, with their opinion. So uh, it was like assuming the like sententious uh, diction of a senator who takes himself very seriously, along with married to like you know the powerlessness of of me who you know is, doesn't actually have a uh, a vote on this. Which is a deep thing, right? It's like it's I mean right that like you like you said it's kind of rushing to say that but like in reality we you know we can call our congress people but ultimately we don't have that much it feels like we don't have that much influence on it um something similar that oh sorry yeah well, i just you know mm-hmm. twitter is very silly and it ha- i mean it has good uses but the people people who take it too seriously are easy subjects for mockery and there's people <laughs> on both sides of the political spectrum who feel like they're fighting a war on Twitter every single day and, mm-hmm. you know, really they're doing almost nothing. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's just inherently funny that <laughs> people being so wrong about what they're committing all this effort to. And, uh, that yeah, so that joke was a little bit along those lines. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point because it's like you're saying, like, there are there are active things to do, but acting like the tweet is the main thing and like you're right that that has some absurdity like the other one that reminded me of that is when you said i have just one thing to say about peter sturzot i don't know how to pronounce it he has an unprecedented consonant to vowel ratio in his last name and i think like even that it's like captures like everyone has to rush to get their opinion on this thing that's going not everyone Okay. But a lot of people, so I'm I'm engaging in hyperbole myself. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think it's useful. Well, that's where I think that good comedy is useful. It's not just funny, but it does point out like like you said, like the absurdity, even if these are very serious issues. So I will highly recommend to all of our listeners that you follow Aria, and I'm gonna link to him. I told Aria that I I laugh out loud multiple times a day at things <laughs> that he tweets. Well, thank you so much. This is definitely the strongest endorsement anyone has ever given to my. Uh, <laughs> uh, usually, usually it's it's a you know weak endorsement to strong unendorsement. So, <laughs> so I, I really appreciate it. No problem. Um, anything else we should talk about before we wrap up today? Um, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, like I said, I host a podcast on Blogging Has TV and Meaning of Life TV called Culturally Determined, and if you Google Culturally Determined, it'll come up. And people can follow you on Twitter at Aria C W A R Y E H C W. Yep, A R Y E H C W Aria And we'll link to all of that in the show notes. We, too. we certainly Absolutely. will. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun, and I really enjoy talking to you and learning more about the work that you're doing, which is 
really important and also just hearing about kind of your thought behind some of the humor too oh well it was my pleasure uh sincerely um you know i'm yeah i'm usually on the uh the person asking questions not the person answering the questions so it's it's uh it was fun to uh switch roles and uh talk about myself for a little bit which you know everyone likes to do well great well thanks so much aria thank you Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, This podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.